last week in our catechism service as we were looking at uh, Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We ended that by looking at uh, question 19, which asks, how do you come to know about the mediator, Jesus Christ? What is it that tells you about this bridge builder named Christ who has built that, uh, that bridge over the gap created by our sins between us and God. How do you come to know this? And the Catechism gives us the answer, the Holy Gospel tells me. You learn your misery and sin because the law of God tells you. You come to learn about the comforts of the Gospel through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Where is that found? The answer goes on to say that God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. That there would be a champion that comes forward, the seed of the woman who would at some point crush the head of the serpent. And from then on, the gospel has been preached. Old and New Testament, one grand storyline, one grand salvation. And it seemed right that if we were going to take some time to think about the covenants of Scripture, that would be a good question and answer to pause on. Because Christ is at the center of the Scriptures, and He is the substance of the covenants. In the book, Covenants Made Simple, we don't have any out over there, but we do have some copies, and if that's not one you've been able to pick up yet, talk to me after, or we'll put some out next week. Um, Covenants Made Simple... The author, John T. Rhodes, he opens with this great question. He, he pinpoints that night before Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus instituted the Holy Supper, and Christ, of course, held up the cup, and he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And John T. Rhodes says, Why covenant? Wouldn't this, wouldn't this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, have been enough for Jesus to have said? Why covenant? Why the blood of the covenant? That's a very helpful question. Why did Jesus say that? And how is it that the disciples knew what he was talking about? Maybe they didn't understand the, the, the full meaning But they understood that he was talking about a covenant and that blood was somehow tied to it. How is it that that was possible? The answer, in part, is that covenants were so deeply ingrained in the life of God's people. And when God did something new in the history of salvation, he tied it to a covenant. When God did something new in creation or salvation, he tied that event to a covenant. The Lord created the world and he made a covenant with Adam. He flooded the world and he made a covenant with Noah. He promised to redeem the world and he made a covenant with Abraham. And on and on it goes. And so on and so on until finally the Lord Jesus arrived. And in his coming, the great event that the scriptures look forward to, it is tied, of course, to the covenant. So our reading of Scripture and our understanding of God's love stands to grow much deeper when we begin to understand the biblical covenants. What is a covenant? Here's one helpful way to define it as we see a covenant in the Bible. 
It is a formal agreement that creates a relationship with legal aspects. And that legal aspects part, that'll become important as we're looking at some of the various covenants in the Bible. But if you were to lob that part off and just say that it's a formal agreement that creates a relationship, we're off to the races. That's a great way to think about covenants. A formal relationship, a formal agreement that is, that creates a relationship. This is one reason why, as we said in the past, why marriage in the Bible is called a covenant. There's something formal, ceremonial, an agreement that two people enter into, and it creates the relationship. Maybe you had an informal relationship beforehand, but now you've got something new that's been created because of a formal agreement. Well, tonight, as we just dip our toe in this grand ocean, I want us to learn to discover the covenants in the Bible. Just to begin tonight to get an intuition for where the covenants are to be found in the Bible and maybe begin to ask some questions about why is this and that one important and in what way. To begin to see how these formal agreements reveal the depths of God's love for his people. We're going to see that first by recognizing that biblical covenants Provide evidence that God stoops down to us. He stoops down to us. We read Genesis chapter 1, chapter 21 earlier. The account of Abraham entering into a covenant with a Philistine tribal king named Abimelech. It is a, it's a business covenant. It's not a religious covenant. God is, uh, is not the one who's initiating this one. They're just setting parameters for how to live their lives with each other in a common region and setting up some some stipulations for how that's going to not go off the rails. In that covenant, both sides agree to legal requirements for both of them. Abraham agrees not to cause trouble for Abimelech's family or his land. He's not going to deface the land and make it a wreck or pollute it. And he's not going to mistreat Abimelech's Posterity. Abimelech says, don't mistreat me, my children, or my posterity, generation after generation. That's what Abraham agrees to. Abimelech agrees to give Abraham's family access to the well of water that he had dug. And in the storyline of Genesis, that's very important because God promised to redeem the world through Abraham's offspring. And if he can't give them water, they die. And the promises of God fail. So this, is a, this well is kind of important. And Abraham is actually getting the better end of the bargain here. Whether Abimelech knows or cares is beside the point. They both come into these legal agreements. There's several aspects of this agreement that seem very strange to us in our day. They uh, exchange things. Uh, Abraham, for instance, offers seven ewe lambs as a gift and as symbolic witnesses. He says, I give you these as witness that I dug this well. They make very solemn oaths. They swear to each other. And they both imply that there is danger to be faced if either side breaks the agreement. You say, I didn't hear that in the passage. Well, Abimelech brought the commander of his army with him. 
I don't know if you uh, have brought a commander of an army with you at the last business contract you signed. But this is exactly what Abimelech is doing. And Abraham, of course, is the Abraham of Genesis chapter 14, who somehow mustered an army of 300 people and took down a whole bunch of kings and saved his nephew Lot. And Abimelech knows this. He opens the the negotiation by saying, "Uh, God is with you. You've got some wealth, you have some power, and so there is danger on both sides if either one breaks the contract. Strange things to us in our late modern era, but for them, it was old hat. There's no script for them to follow. They intuitively understood how covenants worked, and they adapted the terms of the covenant to their own situation. Now, why point this out at all? Because when God chose to enter into relationships with his particular people, he did it in a way that they would understand. He used the form of a covenant that was so common in that ancient region that when he said, I want to make you my people, I want to enter into a relationship with you that's so grand and wonderful that I'm going to compare it to a marriage. And in doing this, I'm going to use the form of a covenant so that you understand what we're talking about. And this is wonderful indeed because he is the high and holy God. He's the creator and we are just not like him. We're creatures. As we saw this morning from Genesis 2, we're made from dust. He made us. We do not make him. He's made us. The gap is incomprehensibly huge. And God has stooped down to our level to speak to us in a way that we understand. And to say, when I enter into relationship with you, I want you to understand what is so significant about it. So he uses a form that his people can understand. That form is a covenant to show us his greatness and his love in a way that we get it. I want to respond back to him with love and affection as well. It's like when a classroom teacher needs to teach her students how to count by tens when they barely know one through ten. And so she sets counting by tens to twinkle, twinkle, little star or something like that. It's something that you can't comprehend. Now it's taken the form of something that is bite-sized, a form that can be comprehended and understood. And so it is with us the recipients of God's mercy. How could we come to know how far we have fallen short of the glory of God? And how further could we come to know the wonders of His love if He did not stoop to our level to tell us about it in a way that we could understand? And even though covenants might be a little foreign to us in our age. They're not gone. There's still something that we we have our own uh, modern way of engaging with them. But when we dive into Scripture and say, how did they happen in the days when the Scriptures were written? Suddenly, the grand works of God on our behalf are illuminated. We understand what He's doing and why. And conversely, if we don't do any digging into these covenants... It's like reading all of it. and uh, It's like watching the Bible in black and white. 
but we could be watching it in color and in 3D. So we come to the covenants to recognize that God has stooped down to us, to speak to us like a loving father speaks to his children, that we might understand his greatness and our sin and his mercy. Secondly, the biblical covenants also reveal the work of God from various angles. The covenants reveal the work of God from various angles. I'm looking here especially back at Psalm 105. It was our second reading tonight. This word covenant shows up about 325 times in Scripture. Just the bare word. And uh, not all of those are divine covenants. We, are, we already saw that with Abraham and Abimelech. But in some very important places, a covenant is being made, but the word covenant is not being used. Let me say it again. In several key places in the Bible, a covenant is being made, but the word covenant is not being used. The Bible invites us to learn how to read it in such a way that we can discern when God is doing something covenantal, even if the scripture writers are not using that word. Some other word or action signals us to recognize a covenantal action on God's part. And uh, passages like Psalm 105 help us to see this very clearly. Psalm 105, verses 7 through 11, listen to how many ways the psalmist describes a covenant. Verse 7, it says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. We pause right there to point out that phrase, the Lord our God. Any good Israelite would already know we are in covenant territory. How? Because of this phrase, our God. The Lord our God. At the center of the biblical covenants is this major promise that is repeated from Genesis to Revelation. It's at the very end of Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people. These are personal, possessive pronouns to show that we belong to God. He's not just some God. And he's certainly not some God among other gods. He's the one true and living God, and we are His people. And this, uh, you know, some, some theologians call this the covenant formula. We're meant to see it and know, hey, we're in covenantal territory. How do we know? Because God has not only used His covenant name, all capital letters for L-O-R-D, for the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also He is the Lord Our God, who has promised to make us his people. So when we see the Lord speaking like that, or we see in Scripture God's people speaking to him like that, something covenantal is taking place, or God's people are remembering his covenant. And that's exactly what they continue to do here in verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. There's the word explicit, uh, explicitly used, his covenant forever, but now the psalmist also refers to that covenant as the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. There is nothing outside of God that forced God to enter into relationship with his people. 
But he has created covenantal relationships because why? He commanded it. He commanded it. Of his own initiative, of his own mercy, his volition. He has decided to command that his covenant would stand forever and ever, as the psalmist says, for a thousand generations. That's not a literal phrase. It means forever and ever. Into perpetuity, if we're going to use contract language here. A thousand generations. Verse 9, the covenant that he made with Abraham. Now it's specifying here. A covenant that we see happen in the book of Genesis. How else does he describe this covenant? He continues in verse 9, his sworn promise to Isaac. Verse 10, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And verse 11 gives us the promise of that covenant. That they'll have a homeland, which we'll find as we continue on in the covenant uh, series, that that was a type and a shadow of a heavenly homeland. Now, the point here is that we have all these synonyms for the word covenant, statue, sworn promise, uh, the word he commanded. And we have these impulses also that when we see things like the Lord, our God, or you are my people, we are in the ocean of the covenants. Swimming around. Whether or not the word covenant is being used. And when we begin to understand this, then the work of God is revealed to us in its various angles. Like the common illustration of people holding up a diamond. And you see something more beautiful about it the more that you turn it around and look at it from various angles. Covenants reveal the work of God to us in just such a way. That... Christ has come to save us is something that is so common to us, we need help to come at it in new ways, to stir up our hearts with love and affection for God. And the covenants help us to do that. Lastly, this evening, the biblical covenants prove God's faithfulness through history. The biblical covenants prove God's faithfulness through history. There are many times in the scriptures where the people of God are at what seems to be the lowest point in their history until another low point comes, and it's even worse than the last time. What is it that keeps them hanging on to hope? The covenants. The covenant promises. And what keeps them living out love and affection for God, even while things are going badly for them, are the covenant statutes, the commandments of Almighty God, the exhortations that are attached, the terms of the covenant, things that they were supposed to be doing. Just like we saw with Abraham and Abimelech. There are things that both sides in the covenant are meant to be doing. The people of God have not only anchored their hope to God's promises in the covenants, but they've continued to live faithful lives even in darkness by obeying his covenant commandments. Now, one very uh, particular way that we see this is in the life of Zechariah and in his song. Again, this is Luke chapter 1. Listen to the way that Zechariah talks about the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does... Zechariah, the priest, think about those great events taking place in the life of God's people. He says that all this is happening 
And it is evidence that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. He's saying we have been under a heavy yoke for generation after generation and finally something is happening that seems to be that great climactic work of God And where did we first hear about this? Zechariah says, the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. That is what anchored the heart of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and all the faithful saints waiting for God to do the next great thing. And they waited and waited, brothers and sisters, and the saints throughout the Old and New Testaments waited long periods of time. Abraham and Sarah were already old people when God promised to give them a son. And then they waited 25 more years for that son to come. Uh, Similarly with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Similarly with all of the saints. We are told, I love you, God says. You are my people. I will save you from your sins and from all your foes and enemies. I will do it. I will heal you, he says. When are you going to do it, we ask God. We may not know the specific answer, when are you going to do it? But we have 100% certainty that he will because his covenants are sure. And his biblical covenants, his redeeming faithfulness is revealed to us when we take a look at the biblical covenants. He is faithful to us, brothers and sisters. And so when we open the Holy Scriptures and we begin to ask, what are these ancient treaties, these pacts, these contracts entered into. What do we do with these things? As we begin to dive into it, it is my prayer for this congregation that we would not only learn better to read the Holy Scriptures and to see the one great storyline that anchors it all to to Jesus Christ, but that we would grow in obedience and love for God, whose commandments are very clearly given to us in the terms of His covenants, but even more so that we would rest firmly in his promises, never to leave us, never to forsake us, but always to claim us as his own people, even as we cry out to him as our own God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your powerful word and for the Holy Spirit who brings it to life to us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would write this word upon our hearts and cause us in your power and strength not to be mere hearers of the word, but doers also. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.